0: Lobbying has skyrocketed in 2021. So Coinbase, Ripple, and the Blockchain Association are the biggest spenders, spending about 3.5 million cumulatively between them. And Meta, IBM, and the Chamber of Commerce are also big lobbying names in the crypto space. This last year, uh, spending on crypto lobbying has quadrupled since 2018, and the number of lobbyists working on the crypto issues climbed from 115 to 320. Uh, in total, the industry only spent a little more than nine million attempting to influence members of Congress in 2021, and that's admittedly still a fraction, very small fraction of what the tech and investment sectors send attempting to hit policy goals each year. But it's still a media, meteoric rise, even year over year and year over year for the last four years in the crypto industry. Um, what's interesting here is there's kind of been a revolving door between the government and the crypto sector, with you know a decent number of high ranking officials joining the industry over the last two years. Um, Along with that, like on that similar note, you're kind of seeing lawmakers start to come out with new bills and laws for cryptocurrencies, because like, I think that these companies are basically getting these government officials to help them figure out how to stay compliant and also how to grow and be profitable. Jake, what do you think about this?
1: Yeah, so this is really interesting timing because um, today I believe we're looking for Biden to announce that he's uh, making an official executive order asking agencies, everyone in the government to begin taking a serious look at trying to form some kind of policy framework uh, for, for crypto. And so the question is, for me, like who takes the lead there? Is it the agencies like the SEC uh, or a different agency uh, like the Fed, who has done a lot of work researching this? Is it Congress? Um, or is it lobbyists? Because this makes total sense why lobbyists would have maybe their most profitable year ever, because I'm sure they saw this coming. We, we've been talking about the laws around crypto for quite a while now. And it makes sense that um, You'd be a fool not to start paying lobbyists if you're a crypto company or if you're in the crypto industry because you wanna shape those laws. Um, So it's, uh, I just wanted to note that an underappreciated aspect of lobbying is that they actually write a lot of laws, like word for word. Um, I know that me personally, for the longest time, I had this image in my mind that laws were written by uh, Congress people and their staff, uh, I almost had like this this image of uh, you know how Thomas Jefferson labored over the Declaration of Independence, and then all of the lawmakers. I mean, they weren't really senators; the country wasn't founded yet, but they all got together, signed it, and, and that became like the template I imagined for how laws still get passed. But that's not really the case. Overwhelmingly, these laws are so massive. For instance, the infrastructure bill was a thousand pages. Biden's stimulus was 600 pages. Most of the laws nowadays, uh, that's a lot of writing. And even though a lot of our lawmakers have legal expertise, it's the lobbyists who are actually spending the time and energy engaging with whoever hires them, in this case, the crypto industry, and then writing out word for word what the laws ought to be. They're the ones who do all that painstaking effort and then they go through committee and blah 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 but um it's just interesting that uh you see this explosion of lobbying activity at a time when this 2022 might be the year that we actually get some some real meaningful change in terms of uh crypto laws so yeah real um, legislation Mm -hmm. well that's uh
0: yeah i mean it's I don't know. I I agree with everything you said. The lobbying, I think that we get that because from what we've seen on TV from, you know, whether it was the West Wing in the 90s or Veep, it's always people around a table hashing out the bills. But I feel like that's why they argue so much about the terminology in these bills before they pass them is because, you know, these lobbyists for whatever sector they're trying to grow or work for they leave, you know, sometimes vague words in there so that they can go either way or kind of bend them. And, yeah, I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I kind of rope that all together.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a, they, there was some mention about how uh, some of the most prominent lobbyists are actually ex-DC people, which is yep. <laughs> without going down into the swamp that is DC or any corruption discussions. I mean, that's that's kind of the norm is – uh, if you want to be effective at your lobbying, you need XDC people because it's a relationship business. Uh, if you are the best scientist in your field and you want to talk to Congress people about climate change, good fucking luck, buddy. But if you're an ex-senator, you can get a meeting with everyone you need to. So um, it seems like they have – I don't know. I'm not a lobbying expert, so I don't know who's a good and bad lobbyist, but they have some ex-DC people. I, I, I'm very curious to see how involved they're able to get – in this big push to create a uh, policy framework that biden's going to announce today or tomorrow so
0: yeah. yeah they should uh they should adopt the motto it's not who you know it's what you know or not what you know it's who you know it's probably going to be <laughs>
1: something like that uh <laughs> but i think we could all use some clarity so uh, oh
0: yeah
1: yeah well cool well um something we'll probably look forward to and talk more about this year but uh why don't we shift over i have uh An article today about um, Russian sanctions. I know that we've been talking quite a bit about uh, the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, and since we're a crypto show, we often talk about the crypto angle. Uh, Specifically today, I want to talk about a thread uh, that I've seen discussed quite a bit, and that's uh, how how uh crypto can be a way for russia to possibly undermine the sanctions because to set the table these sanctions have effectively cut russia off from the global financial system uh russia has seen its reserves in dollars effectively frozen gold is being talked about being effectively frozen out um These oligarchs, especially the heads of the party in russia the the richest um, have their personal assets frozen in bank accounts or even hard assets and so there's this question of uh you know is one of crypto 's use cases uh that it can be used so that Russia can undermine these sanctions that they can find some liquidity that they can continue using the money and the wealth that they've built up um And the answer is not yet. Uh, So far, it's been, uh, let's see, crypto has not so far been successfully used by the affected Russians, especially the leaders, to undermine the sanctions. And uh, so there's a few reasons for this. And I think, first of all, there's just not enough liquidity in the market. If Russia really wanted to take... um, either all of their economic activity or even just the bulk of the assets that these super rich oligarchs have and they wanted to unlock that, Uh, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in liquidity they would need. And the crypto market cap is still only $2 trillion. So there's just an inherent limitation there for for just how expansive it can be. Um, But some of the other reasons, These reasons also point to why the United States, I think, haven't felt the need to enact some kind of blanket crypto ban because, first of all, there are highly gated on and off ramps. If you want to get your money, your fiat money uh, into crypto, or if you want to get off crypto and get your crypto back into fiat, those on and off ramps, especially those centralized exchanges… They're very guarded, they're very monitored, and so far they've been playing along with uh, what the U.S. has asked them to do in terms of sanctions. Uh, Chain analysis also is a symptom of really a problem if you're trying to undermine the monitoring of the U.S. uh, It's really hard to do. If the U.S. government knows which address belongs to you, in this case the Russian oligarchs, they can look at every single thing you do. Um, so that monitoring, that gated on and off ramp, and especially because if you're just an everyday Russian and you your ruble is worthless and you want some way to transact, the infrastructure, it really isn't in place for them to just full-scale switch from the ruble to crypto. Everyday people, everyday shop owners, it, it, there's just not enough like wallets set up. There's not enough, <coughs> excuse me. Accounts set up and just the infrastructure isn't there. So unfortunately, so far, this test case has fallen a little flat. Um, So I don't know, Mike, do you see this as like an indictment on the ability of crypto to be a life raft here? Or how do you read into this?
0: So I kind of see it on both sides. Like, A, if you're going to evade sanctions, like Russia, I'm convinced that And this is we don't have to get into this, but I'm convinced Putin didn't really think all the way through the action of invading Ukraine to the point of, you know, you would think he would have thought about, yeah, they're going to put sanctions down on me and we're going to need to figure that out. But if you're worried about sanctions, you would almost think that they would be worried about setting up like a Russian based crypto exchange and get that popular enough to have liquidity so that they could either, you know, OTC or do trades online there without them being able to shut down anything across the United States. But the other side of that is like the article earlier about lobbying, like we're still so early in the crypto game and as shown by the lobbying numbers and shown by this exactly like the U S lawmakers think that Russia can just evade sanctions right away. And they don't understand, you know, the total volume in the market. They don't understand being able to track everything on the blockchain. So like, Everybody has an opinion, but they're not all well informed yet. So I think it's a good use case to see how it plays out and see what is done and what isn't done. That way, we can keep our eyes open in the future to try and stop further sanctions evasion. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's another angle of this that isn't so much anti the the anti Russian, but the pro Ukraine. Uh, is that you, Ukraine has reported that they've received, uh, I believe it up to $60 million in uh, crypto donations. And while that is dwarfed by the regular fiat money-denominated donations, I think that's up to the hundreds of millions of dollars. And again, we're just talking donations from regular people or, or, or nonprofits. Uh, what they have said is that those crypto donations are coming through exceptionally faster uh, those transaction speeds are going through, and in a time of war, uh, speed is everything. So uh, this isn't to say that, like, if you're trying to say, "Oh, crypto failed," you know, this was a perfect opportunity to prove its metal, to prove that it lives up to what its biggest advocates say it can be, and it have failed. Like, I, I think that's a little drastic, maybe from a, you know the anti-Russian angle. It hasn't quite been there, but but it certainly is providing some benefits to, to Ukraine, and so. I I guess if you're looking for a silver lining as a pro-crypto enthusiast, uh, you can definitely look there.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's 100% the thing. And (laughs) I don't mean to keep volleying this tennis ball back and forth over the net, but if you take that same thing about crypto donations in Ukraine and apply it to those truckers blocking the access from Canada to the United States and Trudeau asking everybody to block those crypto wallets, like... There's always two sides to the coin and, you know, it's going to, it's going to be exciting to see play out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, so this, I, I don't want to open up a can of worms, but fuck it. I'm gonna um <laughs> When I kept thinking about this, I kept thinking if the goal is to, you know, What happens if you were to achieve this goal of creating purely uncensorable, completely private, stateless means to store and transact value? Specifically, what I'm kind of wondering is, how does the nature of global conflict change when you gut economic sanctions, when they're completely undermined by Bitcoin and crypto? What if Russia really did have the ability to just completely switch from the fiat system, the existing traditional global financial system, to the crypto system, and again, making economic stations completely toothless. I'm not saying that is the only option, the only hypothetical, but if that does happen, to me, what at first seems like a good thing, because everyday people, everyday Russians, won't have their lives completely brought down by their banks be- <laughs> you know, be- becoming bankrupt, uh, might actually end up being a very bad thing. Because what sanctions really do is they give us one more nonviolent, relatively nonviolent tool in our toolkit to punish aggressors in this case. So if sanctions are impossible, let's say that we – let's just wind this back five, six weeks. If sanctions were never possible, the only recourse that we're stuck with as the U.S. is, what, war or nothing. Um, If we can't use our economic heft, it's just left to our guns or – I mean, good luck, Ukraine. We'll, we'll give you what we can, but there's nothing we can do to directly, you know, uh, influence or discourage Russia. And so I think that's just that, that that's, there needs to be an answer there for how taking away a nonviolent solution improves global security. But it's uh, just one aspect I, I'm kind of dwelling on.
0: Yeah, and I'm not really sure it does. And again, like that's kind of one of the things where, you know, you kind of got to see it play out. Cause I mean, yeah, we can, we can get into this in another podcast, but I don't, I would be interested in seeing. I know we've talked about before when sanctions were initially implemented and how successful they were. Cause I'm pretty sure it was with, wasn't it with Iran in the eighties or is that too late?
1: Yeah, when, uh, when they got kicked off SWIFT and, yeah. I mean it was effective in the sense that they felt the pain. But um I mean to your point, you can look at the economic sanctions now and you can say, Well, did it work? I mean they're right. still they're still at war. Uh they haven't turned around and went home. So that is a good counterpoint, is that you know, do sanctions work? And I think that's kind of a big debate right now throughout this whole thing. So
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the lawmakers are getting the U.S. citizens all riled up. But, yeah, it is what it is. We'll, we'll, we'll figure
1: it out like we always do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this war is unfortunately far from over, so we'll, uh, yeah. we'll see where we go from here. Well, thanks, Bud. I think we're up on time. I uh, appreciate everyone tuning in. Please like and subscribe. Share the podcast. Um, and we'll be back tomorrow with more.
0: Later, fellas. All right. See you.